Thank you, Bert. Good evening, everyone. Could you turn your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, verse 113. Psalm 119, verse 113. And just to add to that announcement, I forgot to tell Bert, um, we're going to have a budget meeting on Sunday, January 29th in the second session. So Sunday, January 29th, I talked to Freddie today, and we'll do it that, that day in the second session. And uh, we're going to finish our study of the Doctrine of Canonicity. And uh, we did, um, I'm very proud of you, uh, persevering through this. Uh, very important study. And a lot of people, uh, a lot of churches don't teach on this stuff. And uh, it's very important, especially for young people now, especially they go to colleges and they're being, they're, they're, the Bible's being attacked in all these places in, in, in education and colleges and universities and high schools. So this is, uh, this would be um, a good study for them. So uh, we'll wrap this up tonight and be noting the uh, contemporary, the uh, contemporary approaches to the New Testament canon. And then we're going to be doing, uh, starting next uh, Wednesday, we're doing the Doctrine of Inspiration. What I'm trying to do is knock off some of these uh, doctrines with, related to the study of the Bible, bibliology. So what we'll do um, after this, we'll do inspiration, then inerrancy, and then we'll do a series on the history of the English Bible. And then after that, on, on Wednesday, we'll be doing the Doctrine of Justification, which is hugely important. And, uh, with all the lordship salvation stuff out there and all these different false doctrines out there, this will be that'll be a very important study as well. Then we'll do sanctification and salvation, eventually the day of the Lord in prayer. We'll do a series on prayer as well, and that'll take us a while. So um, that's a uh, future coming of uh, attraction, uh, future attractions that we'll have in the future on Wednesdays. And of course, right now we're doing the, the, um, the Book of Obadiah, and we'll finish that and probably. Um, I'd say in mid-March, and then we'll be going back to the New Testament, and we'll be doing probably Second and Third John, and we'll probably do those books. Those small. I'm trying to knock off the smaller books so we have a, a sense of accomplishment here, and then before we start doing these a little bit bigger uh, works in the Bible. So let's take a moment of silent prayer. This is well, actually, actually before you um, before I go to the opening prayer, I had an interesting. Um, there's a um, a place that. Uh, Pastor Pete showed me in Henry one time downtown. It's called Sip, and you've probably heard of it. And I like to have go in the cold weather, go there and have a cigar, right? And uh, so I met a lot of really interesting people. And last night, I, don't, I, um, I met two uh, off-duty Huntsville police officers, and they I talked to them. I talked down quite a long time, and it was really good. And uh, there was another CPA. He lives off Pratt, and then there was another guy who was really interesting too. He they were all friends. He was used to be in Mormonism. Him and his wife left it, which is really very difficult to do. And so we had this long conversation. He came over and he was, you know, asking me questions and stuff. So I told him about, I told all these guys about our church here. And uh, so we'll see what happens. Keep him in prayer. Um, but uh, fascinating conversation. It's been a while since I talked to a Mormon that actually left the Mormon church because they get a lot of grief for doing it. And uh, kind of like a lot of Roman, you know, in, in Massachusetts, they say, well, Roman, when I left the Catholic Church, I was, it was really tough on me. And uh, they didn't like, the family didn't like that. And they thought I was becoming an atheist or something, which was actually the opposite. But anyway, so to keep those guys in prayer. I, Zane was the police officer's name, and I slipped me with the, the guy who was the, the Mormon, his name. So uh, just uh, keep them in prayer if you could. Just, that would help. Maybe we'll see him some night over here. All right, let's take that moment of silent prayer. This is our custom. We take this moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit 
will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So God is holy, and uh, He's not going to have fellowship with us if we're out of fellowship. Uh, he's not going to have fellowship if we're living in sin and having any mental, verbal, overactive sin in our, uh, in our, that we're harboring and having confessed. So we confess it. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. And we maintain that fellowship, of course, by obeying the Spirit, it speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, it's a great honor and privilege that we stand before you uh, to study your almighty word. Father, we just thank you for the wonderful things that we've been taught in your word. We thank you, Father, for uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit who helps us understand your word, uh, the spiritual phenomena that's in it, and so that we can uh, understand and make application. He reproduces the, the character of your son, the fruit of the spirit, when we're obeying him. We just thank you for his ministry, and we pray he would do a mighty work through all of us here this evening. Father, we just uh, thank you for our, our political uh, leaders, military leaders. We lift up our president and the executive, judicial, legislative branches of our federal, state, and local governments and military, um, and also those in covert operations and paramilitary organizations like the police and the fire department in this town. I just thank you for them, and I just pray, Father, for them, and that you would raise up uh, people who have a positive volition in these areas of our society that are in authority. And I also thank you for this uh, ministry and this church and this building that you've given to us and the people who are a part of this ministry that you raved, raised, raised up that are serious students of the Word of God and care about what you have to say and want to put it into practice in their life. And so, uh, Father, I just pray that tonight that as we wrap up this study of canonicity, that you would do a mighty work through both myself as the communicator and those in the audience that are your children. Help your children in the audience to learn, understand, and apply what's being taught. Help them to concentrate. And please break down any barriers that sin and Satan might put up that would hinder that from happening. I also pray, Father, for myself, that you would help me to be sensitive as well to the Spirit's guidance and direction and to be humble. Help me to bring forth your full counsel tonight to your people so that they can uh, uh, understand and apply what's being taught and continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it is in his name we pray. Amen. All right, as I said before the opening prayer, we'll be uh, wrapping up this study of canonicity, 15-hour study. And again, I'm very proud of you that uh, for this congregation for uh, persevering through it. There are some things that are difficult, I know. But uh, we, we push through. And uh, so when we wrap this study up, I just pray that it'll be a blessing to the, this church, the people in this ministry, and uh, those who might be viewing or listening to this, or listening to this, uh, these services online or wherever they might be in the podcast that they put up on the podcast. Whoever listens to this, it would be a blessing to them. So we're going to wrap up this study by knowing the contemporary approaches to the New Testament canon. Now, quickly by way of review, the term canon and canonicity, as we saw in this series, in Christianity refers to a collection of many books acknowledged or recognized by the early church 
as inspired by God. So again, the term canon or canonicity in Christianity today refers to a collection of many books acknowledged or recognized by the early church as inspired by God. Inspiration is so important. I said this many times during the study. If there's one thing you need to learn in this study, it's this. These three words, inspiration determines canonization. The reason why some books got in the Bible and others did not is because some were inspired by God and others were not. And so inspiration determines canonization. Very, very important. And then we saw the canonicity is determined authoritatively by God and this authority is simply recognized by his people, whether it's Old Testament Israel or the church. So uh, again, this refutes all the conspiratorial theories that are out there in the, uh, in our, in the media, and, you, and they're everywhere. And uh, in, on YouTube or Facebook and people in, in publications, people are putting things out there uh, about the Bible and about the subject of canonicity and the, uh, the church is, uh, con- has been conspiracy because of the Da Vinci Code. Uh, that's really put people uh, into thinking about this. And of course, in our culture, we think there's a conspiracy for everything. And I'm, not, I, I'm aware that there are conspiracies as long as there's evidence for that. And, uh, but in this case, there's no conspiracy by the church, Constantine or anybody, uh, to uh, keep certain books out of the Bible. And uh, how do I know that? It's not my opinion. It's just the evidence. We have the early church fathers. We have the New Testament documents, the Old Testament documents. We early church fathers, no record anywhere that this was the case. It's just theories uh, put forth by men like F.C. Bauer in the 1930s, and it's been continuing today right as we speak. They keep regurgitating his theory that there was the strongest faction in Christianity, which we call orthodoxy today, uh, got their books in the Bible, while the others... Uh, who, we, who the orthodox uh, individuals like ourselves call heterodoxy, false doctrine, didn't get their books in. So one party was stronger than the other. There's no shred of evidence for it, and it's been refuted many times over. But yet you'll hear it out there, and you might not hear it now, but one day, maybe in a couple of weeks or somewhere down the road, you'll run into it somewhere. You might hear it right here somewhere in television, or you have a loved one, and they're going to be talking about this, and you'll be ready for them. So canonicity is determined authoritatively by God, and this authority was simply recognized by his people. It's as simple as that. So the determination of the canon of the New Testament, again, was not the result of any pronouncement or either by an official of the church or by an ecclesiastical body, but rather the canon was determined by God himself. And, uh, and so, like, for instance, Roman Catholicism, everything is it's interesting with uh, Roman Catholicism. They believe a lot of the same doctrines that Protestants believe in, the Trinity, the Atonement, the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. But, of course, also they add a lot of other doctrines that are not found uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in Protestantism because they're not found in the Bible, like Mariology and making Mary a co-redeemer. And, you know, giving money to the church so you can keep yourself out of hell. Stuff like that. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of baloney in Roman Catholicism that's come in, crept into the Roman Catholicism in the last 200 years that the early Roman Catholics in the 4th century, the 3rd century, they would be shocked about what's, being, uh, what's out there in the Roman Catholicism. Now, I mention this because the difference between us and the Roman Catholics is the final authority is God. 
And it's tying to canon, uh, the canon of Scripture because the Roman Catholics think the Pope is the final authority and really the true person who is able to interpret Scripture. But, uh, and so they actually elevate themselves above the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is right now, he's the true teacher and mentor of the church. Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit is that member of the Trinity that's really ruling through the church. And he's the one who determines which books are in, in the Bible and which are not. And he's the one who gives us, he's the authority, not the Pope. Not any ecclesiastical organization. The Holy Spirit determined canonization, as we pointed out. Inspiration determines canonization. So that's very important. We believe the final authority is the scriptures, and of course, the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures, gives understanding to the scriptures. It's a living book, so he's the final authority as, we, as far as Protestantism is concerned, not the Pope. He's not on a par with the church, uh, with the, the Holy Spirit, not even close. So remember that because you might bump into a Roman Catholic and they'll start talking about that. And a lot of most, most Roman Catholics have no clue really about what's going on, uh, but you'd be amazed uh, that. Uh, but if you read their church pronouncements, the Roman Catholic Church, this is what you're finding. So a lot of uh, heretical doctrine. So the determination of the canon of the New Testament was not the result of any pronouncement, either by an official of the church or by an ecclesiastical body, but rather the canon was determined by God himself. Now Constantine, uh, he uh, came after the Diocletian persecution. The Diocletian was one of the Roman emperors. He had the last major persecution against the church as we pointed out in this study and he was trying to get he was burning books you know bibles uh, books of the bible he was uh, cleaning out libraries of pastors and destroying uh, their, their 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 different letters of the that are found like of paul that are found in our new testament and so uh, we saw that after him came constantine and then constantine uh, put out the edict that uh, Christianity now was uh, ex acceptable and lawful. And prior to that, Christianity was a threat because Christians worshiped Jesus to the exclusion of the, the Roman pantheon of gods that the Romans worshiped. And so, for instance, as I said in the past, if you worship Jesus to the exclusion of the gods of Thessalonica, like the Thessalonian Christians did, that made you a threat to the Thessalonian community because they thought that the gods of this city would be angry because these, cap, uh, these, um, these, these Christians were worshiping Jesus to the exclusion of them. You can worship Jesus, but don't exclude the gods of the city because then war or uh, earthquake or some kind of uh, natural disaster will destroy the city, all because of these Christians. So Christians face persecution because of that. And so we see that... Um, Constantine, he makes Christianity legal. And so, therefore, he won, all he wanted to know when he called, like, the, the, with the Council of Carthage, these church councils were called together because they, they wanted, Constantine wanted to know, what do we believe is, as, the, as, as inspired by God? And all he did was convene meetings of pastors throughout the Roman Empire. And it took a while because everybody lived, there was not modern travel, no one could hop a plane or a train or an automobile and, and come to, uh, to, to have this meeting. So it took some time to gather these people together. But when they did get together, what they did is they, uh, they, they uh, like the, as reflected in Athanasius' letter in 367 AD, the 27 books that we have in our New Testament Bible today they had. It's the same thing. 
So that's very early in, 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 in the church's history for that to take place without modern travel and communications. So, the, the, so independently, these little house churches throughout the Roman Empire, independently, they came to the conclusion that we have 27 books in the New Testament that are inspired by God, the same 27 we have. And that's not, should be unusual because uh, the Holy Spirit indwells the members of the body of Christ and the Holy Spirit gave uh, the, the early church fathers and the early Christian community understanding as to which books were inspired by God and which were not. Very, don't underestimate that. That's the providence of God. That's the imminency of God. That means God is involved in, in the affairs of mankind and the affairs of the church. So God is transcendent of his, of his creation. If you look at uh, the time-matter-space continuum as a box, God is outside the box, but he's also in the box. That's imminency. So he's in the time-matter-space continuum with us, with the Holy Spirit indwelling the church, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they're involved in our lives, and one of the ways they're involved in our lives is that the Holy Spirit is making the scriptures come alive to us and guiding us in the application and then reproducing the character of Christ, meeting the person of Christ through the teaching of the Word of God, and then reproducing the character of Christ in our life, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, when we're obedient to the Spirit. And the Spirit, it, that means God is involved in our lives. Nothing is happening by accident or chance. Uh, everything is based upon a decree of God in eternity past that is being played out as we speak. So then we noted also in this study, the establishment of the canon was the process by which formal recognition was given to the writings of Scripture already recognized as authoritative. And then we saw there were seven criteria, at least seven criteria we have, that the church used to determine canonicity, which books were inspired by God or not. And this is, I'm going quickly through these because we've studied these already. But I'm just bringing out the major points by way of review before we look at our uh, the, the contemporary approaches to the New Testament canon. Number one, apostolicity. That means every book of the New Testament must be either written by an apostle or someone closely associated with apostle. And I bring out ex uh, examples in the past. Uh, the Gospel of Luke was accepted immediately because it was connected to Paul. Everybody knew that Paul was friends with Dr. Luke. He was his doctor, his personal physician and best friend. And so we also saw Mark, uh, Papias, uh, who was a dis uh, disciple of the Apostle John. He makes, a, he makes a comment in his writings that Mark's Gospel was the memoirs of Peter. And so you, they had to be connected to each an apostle in some form or fashion. And, uh, and so therefore, like books like Hebrews, who didn't have a name attached to it, though the early church recognized it as being Pauline because it was bundled with the other writings of Paul, it took a little while for them to accept that. And once they, the word got around, it was connected to Paul. It was Paul that wrote it. There, they accepted it. And the uh, book of Revelation, uh, it was apocalyptic, in a lot of it. Nothing in the New Testament is apocalyptic, but in the Old Testament, it was apocalyptic genre. But in Revelation was the only book that had that genre. That was a re one of the reasons why that book took a little while to be accepted throughout the Roman Empire. So apostolicity, every book of the New Testament must be either written by an apostle or someone closely associated with an apostle. That's a huge, huge uh, criteria that they use. Number two, reception by the churches. This is very uh, important as well. The books must be universally uh, received by the local churches as authentic at the time of their writing, meaning they're being used in the churches. And then number three, 
we saw that usage by the churches, long-standing, widespread, and well-established use among Christian communities. Had, the work had to be, the books had to be used quite extensively in the churches. Now, there were some books like The Shepherd of Hermas and the Didache, which are very doctrinal, and uh, you can read these today at, in the public domain, but they were not considered inspired by God. Why? Because they were not connected to an apostle. That's why they were never accepted, but they were used in the churches. And then number four, another criteria that the church used was consistency or rule of faith. This is very important. Uh, this uh, weeds out all the so-called Gnostic documents like the Gospel of Thomas and Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Peter, as we pointed out. Consistency or rule of faith, what does that mean? They, this criteria means that they must be, these different books must be consistent with the doctrine that the church already possessed namely the Old Testament and the apostolic teaching that was being proclaimed in a face-to-face -face fashion. Uh, so the early church's Bible was the Old Testament, and it was the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And there were very few, even Jewish people in that day, except for the rabbis, who were trained to read he the Hebrew and the Aramaic of the Old Testament. Most, and Paul quotes from the Septuagint, so does Peter. And so the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, was the early church's Bible. However, during the first centuries after Jesus' death and resurrection and the session at the right hand of the Father and the gift of the Spirit the day of Pentecost, from that point on you had, you had the apostles who were putting the word of God out in a face-to-face -face fashion, spreading the gospel everywhere from Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the Roman Empire and beyond. And so these, they, 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 the church was using the face-to-face -face teaching of the apostle. In fact, Papias says, if I had a choice between reading something from an apostle or listening to him face-to-face, I'd take face-to-face, -face. and every single one of us would do the same. But when they started to die off, with starting with like James, and then you had Paul and Peter were knocked out by the Neronian persecution in the 60s of the first century. And so they, they, then the church, it starts, well, we need to, we, because these guys are all dying off, and then John was the last one to go at the end of the first century. The church needed to, uh, became more of a sense of urgency to, to, uh, to wreck, uh, let's, let's figure out what books do we all agree on? as, as, as uh, inspired by God. And so that was, became a, prime, uh, a priority after the death of the apostles. But everything had to be, any book that came out, if it didn't agree with the, the teaching of the, of the apostles in the Old Testament, it was rejected. That's why today uh, the apostle Paul would be absolutely aghast at the whole subject of the mass or the transubstantiation with the Roman Catholic Church. And then you have the Mariology. Mary's a co-redeemer. He would be aghast. Why? Because none of that was taught by the apostles in Jesus or the Old Testament. So this is how you can weed out a cult. I remember one time someone called uh, 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 us a cult. I was like, excuse me, but you know what a cult is, they said? A cult is where they're teaching false doctrine, like the Roman Catholic Church is like a, more of a cult. We're not a cult. We're teaching the, the, the Trinity, the do sound doctrine here, and you could check it out for yourself. And this was another Christian that was saying that. And I was like, and I've had that said about me and... Jim Ricard has had that said about me. It's a, one of the, uh, the, uh, the, the occupational hazards of being a non-denominational church where you have no higher ecclesiastical body to be accountable to. So, so I was basically explaining to it, that's, a cult is not, a cult is where they're teaching false doctrine like Mariology and stuff like that. 
or, or you know, or you know, like what is it, the Mormons and Jesus and, and Satan were brothers and stuff like that. That's that's not found in Scripture, not taught by the Old Testament uh, prophets or the apostles in Jesus. So again, one of the criteria was very important: the rule of faith, and it means. Uh, at work had to be consistent with the doctrine that the church already possessed, again, namely the Old Testament and apostolic teaching, which is now in our New Testament. Then number five, inspiration. Each book must give evidence internally and externally of being divinely inspired, and the spiritual gift of discernment, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, was used to determine canonicity. It was one of those gifts that, in the temporary spiritual gifts in the first century, in the second and third century, that is no longer around today because we have the completed canon of Scripture. Number six, recognition. Each of these books must be recognized as canonical in the catalogs of the church fathers. And then number seven, internal. Each book must contain exhortation to public exegesis of the word to be classified as canonical. We also noted in the study of the doctrine of canonicity that there were two events in history during the period between 303 and 379 AD that were largely instrumental in the recognition of the extent of the canon. Number one, as we pointed out in the, in the in, in previous classes, is that the Diocletian persecution. Diocletian was a Roman emperor and he was before Constantine. He, was, he had the last great persecution of Christians. Diocletian persecution was one of those events that prolif or, uh, facilitated the, the church's uh, uh, urgent, sense of urgency to uh, let's go and find out what do we believe is inspired by God and what is not so we can protect these books, these works that are being burned by those in Diocletian's uh, army. So there were great attempts at destroying the scriptures during this persecution. And then the other event was Emperor Constantine. He ordered 50 copies of the Bible for the use in the churches in Constantinople, and during this period, the great church councils took place. So we see that uh, the doctrine of canonicity, the, the, the word of God, is alive and powerful. Why do, we, why do books, certain books get in the Bible and others did not? And that's what this study's been doing. And this is important. We love the Word of God. Our whole, our whole lives are based upon what the Scriptures say. We, we, we run our church according to Scriptures. Nothing is done in this church unless it's agreeing with the Scripture. Uh, we are supposed to uh, pract uh, live our lives and raise our families and uh, uh, run our businesses according to biblical principles. We're to live our lives according to Scripture. Raise our children according According to scripture. So this is very important that we believe, understand why we believe what we believe. And this is very important. Why? One, as we pointed out, we want to be able to help ourselves, first of all, because we can't help others in the body of Christ or those outside the Christian community if we're not grounded in scripture and why we believe what we believe. And in this case, why do we believe certain books from the Bible and why others are not? Then we're able to, when we're grounded, when we're grounded, then we can go and help others in the body of Christ that don't know this information or not, uh, uh, not taught on this. And there's a lot of Christians that do not understand this because it's not taught in their churches. Uh, I, I, I'm, uh, I remember the first time I ever heard it was by Bob Thiem. I read other books after that, but it was, I was fascinated by it. I was like, wow, I've always wanted to know these things that he's talking about, that little book that he had, and I still have it. So he was the first person I ever heard as a teacher actually teach on the subject, and it should be taught. 
And so, uh, so pray, pray that the, the doctrinal churches, the churches around the, world, the country in America, that, the, that they that are serious about the Word of God, that they'll be teaching this subject. Because we need, to, we need to educate our people because the Bible, again, is being attacked. So we see that this, the Word of God is alive and powerful. And we, we, have to, we, you know, we show our, that we love God by our attitude toward the Word of God. We're not, we're not worshiping the Bible itself. We're worshiping the God that the Bible speaks of. And so the word of God was the psalmist, great love. And the Psalm 119 I've been reading during this whole period of canonicity, this whole series, is one of the great chapters in all the Bible. And it, because it's 119 is all about the word of God. And the psalmist uh, praises God's word. And he uses different things like precepts and commands to talk about uh, to identify that he's speaking of the word of God. So it says in Psalm 119, uh, uh, chapter 119, verse 113, the psalmist says, I hate double-minded people, but I love your law. Somebody who loves God's word, the law, is somebody who's not double-minded. We live in a culture where we have double-minded people everywhere that we go. We have them even in Christianity. Why? Because they've rejected the word of God. We love the word of God. How do you know you love the word of God? You not only listen to it, but you do it. Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? But those who hear the word of God, that's the first step, and then do it. Put it into practice in their life. Then he says in 114, verse 114, you are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. Notice he talks about refuge and shield, the believer's protection, his protection, the psalmist's protection, and he relates it to God's word. You know, the, the, the number, we talk about the physical protection that we want and God gives us. But uh, this is the, very fascinating. This is what's important, the mind. I was thinking about this today, and uh, I, had to, I had finished off uh, Ephesians 1.15, a book we're going to do in, in sometime in the future, and a great passage. But I was just, just meditating on, on, on what I was studying. And what I, you know, you, you look around in, 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 in our culture, it's a war to control the mind. It's a war to control the mind. Satan is at the heart of it. He's trying to control our minds. He's trying to control the minds of Americans to, and deceive them. And it's all about what goes into your head. Be careful what you allow into your brain and what you allow into your children's brain. And if you do allow certain things, you can't keep your kids in a, in a, uh, in a cocoon, but you need to explain why certain things are there and what they say on television because you can't isolate them. Eventually, they grow to be teenagers and they're going to be exposed to it anyway. Anyways, so you need to, as a parent, explain these things to them that they're seeing that are ungodly. So what we need to do is watch out what we let into our minds. It's just as true for, as adult, uh, for adults as it is teenagers. What you put in your mind is very, very important. Satan, if you don't put truth in your mind, if you don't put truth in your mind, Satan's going to put the lie. It's either one or the other. You're either going to get lies from Satan's cosmic system or you're going to get truth from God, the Holy Spirit. It's a choice that you have. It's either the devil's way or God's way. And if you say no to God and you're indifferent, you've just said yes to the devil because that's exactly what the devil does. He doesn't want you loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart, soul, mind starts up in your head. Everything starts there. From there comes your words and your actions. And that is what this, that's what the church has to be very aware of. The devil is attacking us. And how does he do it? Through fear. 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 He uses that and doubt. Doubt. 
doubt God's word. God won't take care of you. The country's a mess. Look out. Got to protect yourself. Look out. The, the, the Russians are coming and the Chinese. Oh, oh, look, here come the Democrats. Here come the Republicans. Here comes Trump. Here comes Biden. Here comes, oh, with this, that. We're, we're running like a son of a gun. We're afraid in our souls. We're running, for, 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 we're running away. But no, God says, stand firm. The word of God, you've got this, the greatest thing, the mind of Christ, the gift of the spirit, you and I, and there's no one like us on the face of the earth. There is nobody on, a, on this earth like the church. And nobody, and I specifically, nobody like a believer that loves God's word and knows it. You're a tremendous threat. Uh, Sunday, I was talking on Sunday about you as an individual and as a church, we can make a difference. Do not underestimate God working through you. It starts in the mind, though. Be careful what you put in your mind. So that's why I was thinking about today that... Here I am at 61, it's like, I am so thankful, especially with the death of my brother Kenny. It really makes you think of your mortality. My baby, one of my, my younger brothers passed away at 55. And I'm like, thank God. You know, it, it could have been me. God could have taken me. But I'm so glad if he did, I'm glad I spent my whole adult life studying God's word, trying to put it into my head, trying to practice it. Yeah, did I fail? Did I fall down? Yeah, but I get back up. And make many of you, we all fall down through sin, but we get back up, you know? We're like those weebles that kids have. Boom, and they can bounce it back up, you know? And that's, that's us. We keep getting back up. And that's what we need to understand is how, how effective and how much of an influence we can have in the culture. And it all starts with the Word of God, the, the mind and thinking of Christ. And when, and when we have the mind and thinking of Christ and we're applying it and we make it a priority, our conduct will become like that of Jesus Christ. Because that's why he saved us, to become like his son, Jesus Christ, in thought, word, and action. And we're called Christians for a reason. And we have the nature of God here in us. We have the righteousness of God in us through justification and faith in Jesus Christ. And now we have the divine nature. We're partakers of the divine nature. Nobody on the face of the earth like us. But we only appropriate the divine power of God, that omnipotence, that nobody can stop. We only, on, we only do appropriate it through faith. Faith moves mountains. And the Holy Spirit can move mountains and change your life. And don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives. So he's our refuge. We need to protect our minds with the word of God like the psalmist. Verse 115, away from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commands of my God. We're surrounded by people who don't want to keep God's word. And sadly, you see among Christians, keep them away, he says. I only want to be, I only want to be around people that love God's word. Then he says in verse 116, sustain me, my God, according to your promise. Again, his word. God's word, and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. Uphold me, and I will be delivered. I will always have regard for your decrees. You reject all who stray from your decrees. For the, uh, the believer who rejects God's word, there's, there's discipline. And for the unbeliever, it's the wrath of God in the lake of fire if they don't repent and trust in Jesus before they die, leave this earth physically. Then it says in verse 119, all the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your statutes. My flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. Isn't it, it's, you know, like today when I was finished off Ephesians 115, I was like, I'm in awe of God's word. It's like, I'm, it's just amazing. And it's like, it, I could never think of anything that's more enjoyable and then studying God's word. It's just the things that 
you learn the things that solve you. Somebody asks, so why do you love the Bible so much? One, I'm getting and coming in contact with the living God. Hello? I'm coming in contact with him. He's talking to me and I'm listening. And then the other thing is it solves my problems. It helps me solve my problems of being a sinner in the devil's world. You know, and insecurity and loneliness and all that stuff. It solves all that problem, the word of God does. Everything is, it's so important that, you know, that I was just, thank God for God's word because I couldn't do without it. I couldn't survive. It's truly this, our spiritual fruit, is, uh, food, isn't it not? Man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Old Testament quoted by Jesus in the New Testament. So, and look, he says, my flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. Then he says in verse 121, I have done what is righteous and just. Uh, do not leave me to my oppressors. Ensure your servants' well-being. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail, looking for your salvation, looking for your righteous promise. I love this back here. It says, ensure your servants' well-being. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. I just thinking, and uh, I just thinking about we live in a culture that oppresses Christian, Christians. There's a hockey player. You hear that story out there? There's a hockey player for the Philadelphia uh, Flyers. And they want to have this, you know, celebration of gay pride or whatever, LBGTQ, whatever. I can't get all those letters. I can't remember them all. So then they have this thing and they have, they have the hockey players involved in this thing. And the guy says, you know, he was a Greek Orthodox. He said, it's, it's, it's against my religion. And they, the, the, the uh, Twitter and everything lit up like a Christmas tree. And they're just oppressing this guy. And I said, wow, that took a lot of courage. And he had, you know, it's funny. They're very intolerant of other people's views, but they want you to accept them without any question. Well, I, I, I had this conversation with a, 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 a person who was gay. And I said, look at, he said, you have a, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, okay? You have freedom of speech, I have freedom of speech. I have a right to voice my views, which I disagree with your, your, your lifestyle, your choices. That's my opinion. I have a right to my opinion. I have a right to my opinion as a human being before God. And you have a right to yours. Do I disagree with it? I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to shoot you. I'm not going to do anything like that. But I will disagree with you. And what they do is they demonize you. They demonize this guy calling him homophobic. Homophobic is just another term to demonize people. Homophobic? Do you see him, this guy who is just a hockey player, just trying to do what his God's told him to do in, in the Word of God, and he does it, and, he, and he's trying to obey God, and they demonize him. They're oppressing him, and that's what they want to do in our culture. They want to oppress Christians, and they they are intolerant of the Christians' rejection of homosexuality. So much so, people, they're already doing it in Canada, throwing pastors in jail. They want, and they're coming close to doing it here. They want to get, for me, just talking like I am now, they want to make it a hate crime. They want to cuff me and, put, and, and take me away someday. That's what they would like to do. It's called tyranny, okay? That's what, you know, Hitler would do and the Nazis would do. That's a dangerous thing. Those people are going to get, uh, getting stronger and stronger by the day. And we got our oppressors out there. And so you might, especially, I, you know, you might be in a situation where you're working, you're like a teacher, and you're working in a school, and you have to make a decision. You, and you're, you're caught between a rock and a hard place, and you, you're going to have to make that decision. Well, do I stand for the word of God, or do I go in? And you know, they're trying to basically force him to celebrate gay and lesbian behavior. 
that alternative, so-called alternative lifestyle. They're forcing him by if, by not involved in the ceremonies and the festivities and wearing that, you know, on this, the hockey stick, the rainbow thing. He wouldn't do that. If you don't do that, then you're a homophobic. They demonize you. That's oppressing you. That is persecuting you. And I, if I was him, oh, when I saw that thing, I said, he should be praising God, persecuted for righteousness sake. Bring it on. Just like the great prophets of Israel and the apostles and Jesus, he's, that, that's, I, I have a lot of, pray for that guy. I don't know, I forget his name, for the Philadelphia Flyers. But that's the kind of thing oppresses. He's trying to keep God's word, which says homosexuality is a sin, an abomination to God. So then it says in verse 123, My eyes fail, looking for your salvation, looking for your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your love and teach me your decrees. I am a servant. Give me discernment that I may understand your statutes. Notice being a good servant is related to discernment. And what is discernment related to? God's word. The Holy Spirit gives you discernment. Through God's word, he can give you discernment about who's the right person to marry or not. He gives you discernment about people. The more you get into God's word, the Holy Spirit, when you do that, you give the Holy Spirit more ammo to help you discern certain situations. It's like, um, because I've been walking with the Lord for a while, when, when this church came calling and asking about me if I'd be interested, I said, hot diggity dog, I'm coming to Huntsville. I knew I was gone. I was praying for it, and I knew, and I had been walking long, long enough, I knew when an answer prayer had come, and boom, there it was. I said, there it is. How do they know that? Because of discernment, word of God. They couldn't, people were like, how did you know? I, know, I, just, I, I knew. And I just watched it play it out, and they go, yeah, yeah, every time, every time. Then the second time I was there, yeah, they're going to ask me to be the pastor. I was like, yes. You know? So that, it just gave me discernment. It just gives me discernment about people. You know, I remember the first time I, uh, I met Kirk, I was like, Holy moly, this guy is something else. He's, there's, there's Bert and there's Kirk, the wartime president and the peacetime president. What do, you heard the story with, with, with it, uh, 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 Von Machi goes, he had you all nailed, all you guys. He says, Bert, he's your peacetime president. Wartime president, you want Kirk. <laughs> I was laughing, I was like, but I, was, I didn't know what to think of Kirk. And I, my, my emotion, I didn't, you know, most, you meet him for the first time, you're like, oh, is he a nut or something? So then I'm sitting there going, calm down, don't let your emotions get to, uh, to you. And I said, I said, I said oh man, is he going to be a problem? I'm going to have to deal with this guy? Because I've had some crazy people in my life. So he goes, so I have to, as time goes on, I'm going, and I talked to him like, he's actually really cool. I like this guy. And he, and he, and he loves the word of God, and he gets things done, both of them do. And I was like, and all my deacons are great. I was like, holy mackerel. And so the God was the Holy Spirit was saying, shut up, stop being emotional, don't freak out, he's not a nut. He's actually a zealous person who loves the Lord, just like you, Billy. You're, he's a, just like you're a nut, he's a nut, okay? <laughs> a spiritual nut. So and then it says in verse 126, it's time for you to act, Lord. Well, talk about bad uh, discernment. I didn't have this. When, when, uh, when I talked to uh, Bob uh, Weekly on the phone, I thought he was this old guy, you know? You know, and, and so he gets off the bus, and I go, holy mackerel, what is this guy? He's like, you know, he's like uh, the Terminator coming off the bus. You know, he's like, it's like, I was like, talk about no discernment whatsoever who, who this guy is coming off. I, was, I thought he was going to be this little old guy. He's like, how are we going to pack the van? So he, that was, 
<laughs> I had no discernment on that. I was like, again, I must not have been really preying on the situation. So he, I, I listened on the phone. He sounds like an older guy. You know, he's like a real, you know. And then I said, he does, he's in Afghanistan. He's fighting in war. Like, I couldn't ask for it if I go to my dad. If we get attacked on the way down, I get Bob. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just stand behind him as this, you know. Oh, it's so far. But even Bob couldn't handle New Jersey in the, in the one way. You couldn't go take a, a, a U-turn, right? Remember that? That was so funny. But anyways, back to the one, Psalm 119, verse 126. It's time for you to act, Lord. And when it, oh, the Lord acts, boy, did he act. You know, we, me coming here, I was like, wow. <laughs> there it was. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm in Huntsville. I remember sitting in my, uh, I'm sitting in my, in my apartment, uh, my house the other day. I was like, yeah, house, I could always live in an apartment. I go, I'm halfway all down the road. How did I get here? Like, holy mackerel, God. You just, and uh, unbelievable. When he wants to move, he moves and just get out of the way, baby. That's all you got to do is get out of the way. Be available, but get out of the way. Not let go, let God. You do what your God's telling you in the word, but then look out. Because he, he can do mighty things, and he can, and I, I think he's doing mighty things now. I think he's going to do mighty things in the future because I know my God. Then it says in verse 127, because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. So that, the psalmist is expressing his love for God's word, and that's the way we need to be. If Could we write a psalm like that? And, and, and extolling the virtues of God's word. So as we continue, uh, wrap up this study of canonicity, we see that some scholars have argued that the idea of a canon should be done away with. They don't want a canon or even entertain because they believe that there's no qualitative difference between the New Testament books and other early Christian literature. Thus, they contend, these individuals, these scholars, that whatever sources shed light on the early Christian movement should be treated all the same way. And thus they argue that books like James should not be treated any different than a non-canonical book that we call Clement of Rome. However, the problem with this view is that it only becomes reasonable if one rejects the notion of the canon as a closed list of authoritative books as well as the idea of scripture. So this view is much too quick to abandon the heritage of the church. It's also helped by the view of scholars who consider the canonical books as late. Now there's another, uh, uh, another view, another debate among scholars today that is regarding the notion of a canon within a canon. It's very, a very big uh, issue that's being talked about and it, it will trickle down to the church. It already has. You know, scholars are talking about stuff and it's going on and it trickles down to the church. So my job is to keep up with these things because it trickles down to the church. So I'm trying to, by give, I'm giving you this, actually, this particular subject today with the contemporary approaches to the New Testament canon is one of the ways I protect you from false teaching, false doctrine. So there are some, again, who contend that the church should recognize that different groups had the freedom or even the obligation to define certain portions of the canon as being definitive for them. Now, for example, they say, Luther and Calvin emphasized the teaching of Romans and Galatians because of the Reformation, justification by faith, more than, let's say, 1 Peter or Revelation. Therefore, why not recognize, they say, these scholars, that certain groups had the freedom and obligation to define certain portions of the canon as scripture for them. Related to this, there are some who view the canon as a spiral, they call it, meaning that the church should consider books such as James and 2 Peter as the outermost elements of the canon, which eventually gave way to the inner core, such as the Gospel of John and Romans. However, the idea 
of Scripture and the canon reject all such approaches since they are all subjective rather than objective. Only the view that we have of canonicity is objective. These other people with these different views of canonicity are totally subjective. They are in fact deny that there is a canon which must be the basis for our decisions as pastors. And if it is true, some parts of the New Testament have a bigger influence than others because they're longer and more comprehensive. Romans got a, a much bigger influence than let's say Jude does. Okay? But these views, when they do this and make certain books like Romans and John as uh, greater uh, revelation than these other books like Jude or 2nd and 3rd John, they relativize the canon. And, and in fact, they deny that there is a canon which must stand as the basis for our pastoral choices. Now, some like the Roman Catholic Church, which I've talked a lot in this study, have at times declared that the church's role in establishing the canon, which has resulted in the view that the church's authority established the canon. It's false. It stands in direct contrast to traditional Protestant doctrine. What have we been talking about? Protestantism and Catholicism. Protestantism is protest. Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and many others that followed. What was the issue there? It was about authority. So we've been touching upon. And Roman Catholics say the Pope is a, the authority on a par with Scripture, even greater than Scripture, because he, the, the, we can only know the Scripture because of him. That's exactly what they believe, the, the hierarchy, and look at their thing. And so the Pope is the authority, not the Holy Spirit, not God. They basically push the God off the throne is what they did. Protestant has always maintained that we're the individuals who are Protestant because we protested against, like Luther and Calvin, against the Roman Catholic Church. So we believe in sola fide, sola scripture, faith alone and Christ alone, the scriptures, okay? Protestantism, Protestantism has maintained from the beginning that the church merely recognizes that which is canonical and could never establish the canon. Traditionally, Protestantism has maintained that the church's role with regards to the canon is to merely recognize, as we pointed out, that only certain books demand the church's obedience and not others, which results in con constituting a canon, or in other words, a closed list of authoritative books. And then recently, recently we see that, uh, if I can get this thing to go, recently there have been developed the view that the text which we have of the New Testament today is the direct result of the church's handling of its own traditions. And this would include the peculiar interpretations established by inner biblical connections, and these must be accepted as normative for the church. They call this approach canon criticism. Now, that's easy to refute, although this view expresses the effort to read the Bible as a whole and to read each of the biblical books as completed works. It does express abstract truths that can be inferred from the text as a whole, but rejects numerous biblical truths which have historical reference. The Bible is a book that's been written in history. It's not a history book, though it has history, but it's a book that's written in time, in history, and it was inspired by God. And so we see, therefore, as we wrap up this study of canonicity, we must remember when approaching this subject that God has indeed revealed himself in history. We are so blessed people because God is revealed to us and we've accepted the revelation 
through, the, through faith. We listened to the Spirit, and we accepted the gospel for our justification. And now, we're, as children of God, we're continuing to listen to the voice of the Spirit as he's proclaimed, uh, as, he's being, uh, using, as he's using his voice through pastors and also speaking to your human spirit, your heart, in your own private sanctified time alone with God. God discloses himself. In the, and in the past, he has disclosed himself. I was telling this guy who was in Mormonism, and he, he, he was like 29-year-old guy, and I said, look it, if God could create the time matter stays continuum, okay? If he's that powerful, do you believe there's a God that did that? Yes. Okay, in creation, we're, you and I are too complex. It demands a creator. Creation, just us. Your hand, look at that. A guy who led me to the Lord said, look at that hand. I go, yeah, how in the world is that? You're not even thinking about, you know, it moves up without you even thinking. I mean, just think of the, the intricacy to get that from your brain down to here. How's that? You're going to tell me that's by natural process like the evolutionists say? It's insane. It takes more faith, as the famous saying. It takes more faith to believe that, that you, you and I came out of a blob than for the fact that God created us out of nothing. In fact, every cause... Must every effect must have a cause. Well, don't you think this is creation, all of us? Isn't that a big enough uh, reason to believe that there's a God? And just all the things that have to take place for life to exert, exist on planet Earth is absolutely astounding. It's 10 to the, I don't know, whatever power it is, crazy. But you and I, I said to the guy, so you believe that? Well, don't you think if he created the time, matter, space, continuum with just the word, don't you think, and created us and how complex we are, don't you think he has the wisdom enough and the know-how and the power enough to communicate with human beings? I said that to a family member one time, and they just looked at me like I had two heads, like, well, that, I don't know, I mean, you could see the brain was going, yeah, but they, you know, pride gets in the way, right? So this kid, this morning, he was very humble. I said, this is the first thing you got, you got the most important thing that you need, humility, you see, I see he, he, that James 1.5 is his pastor, passage. I said, that's what I, when I was a young Christian, that's what I did. I said, God, it said, you know, if you want wisdom, and you lack wisdom, pray for it. I prayed for it. I said, he'll give it to you. He'll give it to you. If you want the truth, he's going to give it to you. He will disclose himself to you. And he's got, you've got your NIV Bible. That's great. Get rid of that King James because you don't talk that way anymore. We don't talk that way. It's great translation. But we talk, uh, uh, English is a lot different than it was 300 years ago. Just read Tyndale's. It's crazy how well, they spell things and pronounce things. So I said, he's going to reveal himself to you. Stick with it. So we must remember again, when approaching the subject of canonicity, that God has indeed revealed himself in history. He discloses himself and in the past has disclosed himself. And he's also a God who speaks and who keeps his covenants with men. He has, of course, also revealed himself perfectly through the great God-man, Jesus Christ, the unique, the anthropic person of history, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And this establishes the necessity of the canon and by way of implication, this canon's closure. And we'll close with this. The church did not establish the canon, or in other words, it did not choose the books we now have in our English New Testament, but rather all she did was merely recognize the authority of these books through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and which authority comes from God himself, our sovereign and our king, the God we worship, the God who stands, sits at the right hand of the Father, and, and the Father who's right there, and he, they, they rule the earth, they rule the time, man, and space continuum. They're going to come, they, they're going to establish their kingdom on the earth. 
and we're a part of that. And we, right now, we need to do, do everything we can to learn God's word, may, be immersed in it, and put it into practice, and ask God to help you to be a, one who is a, a great lover of God's word and practice of it, just like the psalmist King David was. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son Jesus Christ ultimately. So, Father, it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, let's sing us a song, and then we'll close. called You My Father. Son, I'm